Listener Production. Hey there, I'm Bencion Siebert, and this is your afternoon briefing. Medicare is part of our identity as Australians. It's a bit like our gun laws, or the way we do elections, or how we use a kettle rather than a microwave to boil water. We like to think it makes us better than the Americans. But of course, it's more important than that. Before we had universal healthcare in this country, medical bills were the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. Now, if you get cancer or you're in a car accident or you need major surgery, part or all of that will be covered. This month, as Medicare turns 40, people are looking at this system with new eyes. Is this thing still fit for purpose? Does it cover what we need it to cover? In this afternoon's episode, we're going to hear its relatively unknown origin story at an Aussie barbecue in the 1980s, and we find out what could be done to keep Medicare in good health for the next 40 years. Here's the briefing's Sasha Barbagat speaking with Keyes Van Gool. He's a professor of health systems and policy at the University of Sydney. Keys, first off, welcome to the briefing. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of Medicare, I've heard this story that Medibank, which was the first version of Medicare that Gough Whitlam came up with, it was born at a barbecue. Is that true? And can you tell us the story? Yes, the legendary barbecue is certainly a factor in uh, in Australia's universal healthcare system. So, yeah, so we're celebrating 40 years of Medicare, which was introduced in 1984. But in fact, uh, as you said, Medicare has a predecessor, which was uh, Medibank, which was introduced in 1974. So it's actually 50 years since since Medibank, you know, 10 years apart. And to go back to how Medibank was uh, introduced, you've got to go back to a, to a barbecue that Gough Whitlam attended back in 1967, where he met two academics, uh, John Diebel and uh, Dick Scott from the University of Melbourne, where he basically said, look, I'm really interested in introducing universal health care into Australia but it's got to be within the confines of the Australian system, within what we already have, within the laws of and the constitution of Australia, so that it can't be eradicated or, or removed again uh, through high court challenges as such. Because prior to that, there had been so many various attempts already at introducing forms of universal healthcare system, which were always continuously challenged. Was Australia kind of leading the pack at that time when it came to universal healthcare or were we kind of modelling off other countries? Universal healthcare was something that had been sort of introduced in a lot of other countries by that stage. So we were a bit behind, particularly by 1984, we were very much behind. A lot of the wave of universal healthcare sort of came in the post-World War II era. You know, England went to the NHS and a lot of other uh, European, Western European countries uh, went to universal healthcare. So by 1974, we were sort of lagging behind, and certainly by 1984, we were sort of lagging behind. And and now I would say, you know, with the exception of the United States, basically all OECD countries have universal healthcare. So how come we ended up with Medicare and not Medibank? What was the difference between the two systems, and what changed so that we were given Medicare in 1984? So the two are really similar. So it's the same sort of design. And when you think about universal healthcare, it's been like a, a patchwork. So we've built in pieces over time. So, for example, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which is a really important part of the universal healthcare system, that sort of got introduced in the in the 40s. It, it changed a little bit in the 50s, but essentially it's been part of the fabric 
for you know over 70 years now. So that was you know that was cemented. We had public hospital insurance, essentially free public hospitals as we now know it, in the late 40s, early 50s. Then it was dismantled, and then we picked it up when when again picked it up in 1975, and pick, it was dismantled and picked it up in 1984. So it's been this continuous sort of backwards and forwards, two steps forwards, one step back, two steps forwards. But it wasn't until 1984 that we can now recognize Australia's universal healthcare system as we now recognize it. You know, it, it, it was the last big piece of the puzzle, and this time the puzzle stayed. Basically, up until John Howard in 1996 essentially agreed to keep Medicare as it is, it has been contested political space. It's a bit like, you know, climate change and electricity policy in this country now. You know, it's just always backwards and forwards and, and you know, legislation gets passed and it gets repealed and all sorts of things. So think of universal health insurance in that space uh, you know, between the late 40s and, and 1984. We've talked it up, but there are definitely issues with Medicare as it stands now. You know, what are some of the biggest problems with the program and what needs to be done to make sure that it is still viable and still working in another 40 years? It's a patchwork, right? So you can, you can think of uh, universal insurance as sort of three dimensions. The first dimension is what proportion of the population is covered. And Medicare does pretty well because we do, we cover most people. There are really only some visa classes that it doesn't cover. And even for those visa classes, you know, there's a requirement that they purchase private insurance. So that's that's a dimension that's covered pretty well. The second dimension is what services are covered. Now, here, you know, we do pretty well, but not everything is covered. You know, typically we don't cover over-the-counter medicine. We don't cover forms of plastic surgery. But the one big bit that's still missing is is dental care. So dental care is one aspect that um, uh, is still a missing piece of the puzzle. There have been various attempts to include dentistry into the Medicare package. And, and we do have some insurance for it. So there, there is some public dentistry and and of course privately you can also insure for for dentists but i think everybody would agree that this is a part of the system that is that is underinsured the third dimension is basically the depth of the coverage so to what extent does insurance cover each service that you're paying and, and so if it's not insurance then it's co-payments right so you've got to pay out of pocket and so that's always a, an issue in the Australian setting particularly if, if you're claiming for things like GPS or diagnostic images or, or particularly specialist care so I would say in terms of services you know dentistry is is a particular, uh, issue and in terms of the sort of depth of the Medicare out-of-pocket cost for, for some particular services is still an issue as well. What's happening in the space now when it comes to planned changes to Medicare and its features? You know, we saw last week that the amount of GPs that are bulk billing did actually increase for the first time since 2020 off the back of the Labor government increasing the incentive for doctors to do so. So that's a policy change there. Are there any other movements in the space that are going to see those things you just mentioned either brought in or talked about on the halls of parliament? There's a lot of focus on GP bulk billing rates in the general public uh, debate. And that's right. You know, we, we all go to the uh, to the GP, so it's a really important issue. Um, the incentives seem to be working. So, you know, it was uh, the Howard government in 2004 
for that sort of introduced the first bulk billing in incentives, which had a, a you know it was a very similar sort of story. You know, uh, years of declining in bulk billing rate and incentives uh, then came in uh, along with a sort of a, a rise in the MBS. So that's been part of the story. And then, of course, yes, uh, the Labor government uh, recently introduced the bulk billing incentives, or it basically tripled the bulk billing incentives, and that now seems to be having an effect. The next challenge uh, is obviously we want to see the bulk billing rates keep going up. This is very early, early numbers. Uh, yet, it's you know, first of all, it's arrested the decline and it's kicked up a little bit. So we want to see that keep going. But there are still certain areas where, you know, you could think of, things like specialist care where access is still an issue. So when we measure equity in the system, GPs, and this is based on slightly older data, but GP care is fairly equitable. Public hospitals is is equitable, but specialist care is, is still favoured by higher income people compared to lower income people. So that's a, an issue that yeah, needs to be addressed. How safe is Medicare? You mentioned before that it's kind of been picked and pulled apart over the years. There have been uh, legislation brought in and legislation axed. How safe is it? Are we going to continue seeing Medicare? It'd be pretty unpopular, I'd imagine, to do anything really fundamentally different to Medicare. Look, up until 1996, this really was a contested space and it featured a hot debate every election about who was going to govern and what the plans were for uh, for Medicare. But it was in 1996 where, where we could essentially put Medicare in the trophy cabinets, that, you know, this was an essential part. And and true to the words, you know, that is what happened. As I, as I mentioned before, the, the decline in the bulk billing rate uh, that happened in the sort of mid-90s was arrested within the coalition government through a major uh, funding uh, injection uh, for bulk billing and uh, and the rise in MBS. So I think as we know it, it's there. I think the challenge is more around how do we make sure that Medicare keeps up with the changing dynamics of the healthcare that we need. Because I think the way the system was designed in 1984, it served a different population, a different demographic and different healthcare needs. As we've aged, we've become uh, more chronically ill, so more chronic diseases that require uh, multidisciplinary care over longer periods of time, right? And of course, there's been an enormous technological change as well. And the health system needs to sort of be able to incorporate those changes, make the best use of the technology and change to make sure that we're looking after people in a multidisciplinary way over longer periods of time. And that's where I think the funding system still needs to sort of reform in order to keep pace with the changing needs of, of uh, Australian patients. Mm, absolutely. I, for one, as I said, am very grateful to have Medicare. I wish it a very happy 40th birthday and <laughs> I toast many, many, many more happy years with it. Uh, Keys, thanks so much for joining us today and for giving your insights. My pleasure. Thank you. Keys Van Gool there. He's a professor of health systems and policy at the University of Sydney, speaking with our very own Sasha Barbagat. That's all for your afternoon briefing today. But wait, there's more. The weekend briefing with Antoinette Latouf will be live in your feed tomorrow. Antoinette, who do we have on this week? This week I chat to a self-described introvert who also happens to have 16 million TikTok followers. It's Caleb Finn. He went from working in early education to making viral horror videos and he gives 
lots of fascinating insights into what it's like to be a full-time content creator and whether there's such a thing as too morbid for the internet. Thanks for that, Antoinette. And we're keen to hear your feedback and guest suggestions for the show. Hit us up on Instagram by searching The Briefing Podcast, hit follow and send us a DM. There you'll also find the Behind the Briefing Broadcast channel where we give you an insider's look at making the show and special bits that you won't find anywhere else. I'm Ben Siebert. Have a great weekend. Listener.